I'm Susanna Clapp. I write about theatre for The Observer. This is Simon Godwin, who's an associate director at The National and, of course, directed Twelfth Night. Let's just start straight away, Simon, by saying this um, production is, was famous before it opened as the production which cast a woman as the steward. So Malvolia became Malvolia. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Mm. Well, I think... Um, uh, it's a combination, really, of three things. The, the theatre, um, in this case, um, one of the actors, Tamsin, and um, my mm, curiosity about the play. But let's start for a second about the theatre. Um, Twelfth Night has been produced by the National Theatre once before. Uh, it was last done in the Dorfman, um, previously known as the Cottesloe, directed by Peter Hall, Sir Peter Hall. Um, so there was a feeling in the theatre that this was a play that had never been staged in the bigger spaces, and it was probably time for us to to look at that play. Then there also was a parallel to that. I was having conversations with Tamsin, who I'd, who I'd seen in a play called Jumpy at the Royal Court mm. when I was working there as an associate director at that theatre. And I really loved her performance in it and really loved talking to her about what she could do one day. And as we talked together, Tamsin and I, about parts for, for actresses um, in the classical repertoire, we realised that actually, especially as one gets older, those parts are relatively few and far between. And so there was this combination of the theatre being curious about Twelfth Night, and then Tamsin and I talking about, well, if she was to take part in Twelfth Night, what, what were the parts that she could play? And we talked a bit about Viola, which was one thing, and a little bit about Olivia, and um, there wasn't quite that. And then in a moment of, well, I guess, um, audacity, we said, well, what about Malvolio? Uh, and... Um, we thought, well, actually, to be honest, we both felt quite alarmed by that idea. And we said, well, <laughs> maybe the best thing would be to do a reading of it. So she and I sat in a small room at the National Studio reading the play out loud. And actually, the end of that reading said, it doesn't really work. It's too, it's too strange. And, of course, one of the problems was that there were many, many references to you, sir, or come in, gentlemen. And the language of maleness was feeling so overwhelming. But then uh, we decided to not... In think, well, it, let's not lose the idea entirely, let's keep thinking. So what we then did was we uh, decided to do another reading, but we decided to change the text from Malvolio to Malvolia, and to go through and change all the gentlemen and replace them with lady or madam. And we did the reading again, this time with a full company of actors. And suddenly an idea that had seemed very contrived seemed very liberating. And through making these little adjustments in the text, it felt like, ah, this could sustain and could work. And then for me personally, I had a great wish to go back to comedies. Um, I mean, in terms of I'd done both stratagem in this space and had really enjoyed that experience and felt very curious about doing comedies in this theater and the potential for a kind of carnivalesque atmosphere. And I felt that Twelfth Night had had such a reputation as an autumnal play, as a melancholy play, that what would it be like to take that play and, and try and make it funny um, and to, to do that in this space? So suddenly, these three things, of the theatre wanting to do it, of Tamsin feeling gutsy about taking on this part, and my own curiosity about what I could reveal about it all came together and we ended up putting it on. Well, it's interesting you say that it makes it that you wanted a carnivalesque, which it certainly has. I mean, I don't know how many people have seen it here, but it's a mm. tremendously whirly gig, um, extravagant, buoyant production. 
But of course, you could argue that Malvolio, who's quite a sourpuss, um, putting her at the center of the production actually brings another degree of melancholy. I mean, what mm. happens to him, her, in the play is terrible. I mean, you might think it's almost a tragedy. Mm. I mean, do you not think that in some way it, it slightly alters the focus towards another kind of sadness? Yes, I mean, I think there are sadness lies within sadness somehow, or, or joy lies within sadness, and sadness lies in joy, which is the one of the kind of reversals or, or opposites that Shakespeare seems to love so much in this play. I've got one thing to share, which is that uh, on this, um, so I was thinking about the whole question of Malvolio and Malvolio being a focal point, and uh, I was thinking, knowing I was coming to talk today, uh, something that I found when I was preparing the play was that this is one of the only Shakespeare's that we have a review of the first production. Uh, and this is a, a uh, it's an, a, a, an entry in the, in the diary of a young law student that saw the production when it was first done in February 1602. It's very short, and I thought I'd just read a few lines of what he wrote. He says, um, a good practice in it to make the steward believe his lady widow was in love with him by counterfeiting a letter as from his lady, in general terms, telling him what she liked best in him and prescribing his gesture in smiling, his apparel, etc. And then when he came to practice, making him believe they took him for mad. Now, of course, there's, a, there's, there's an error in uh, John Manningham's review because he talks about uh, his lady widow, Olivia. Of course, she isn't a widow, but she's somebody who's suffering grief for her own brother mm. and father. But here, it's interesting that the detail that he chose to write about in that very short review was the steward, mm. was the servant that's tricked. So I sense that in Shakespeare's imagination, this archetype of the Puritan who gets, as it were, loose at the end or undergoes a transformation was very much at the, well, was a, 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 a huge tentpole of the play. Maybe it's not the centre, but it's certainly one of the foundations. Uh, you say, it's interesting, you say gets loose, because actually only after incarceration, mm. and uh, with a very bleak ending, and you're, for all its wonderful riotous qualities, mm. the actual ending of your production is quite a, a moment of solitary desolation with the rain coming. Mm. Uh, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody. I, <laughs> I mm. don't think I am. Mm. Um, I mean, it's quite a sort of sodden and sad mm. end. Mm. Yes, I mean, it took us a long time to, to, to uh, in the production. Actually, maybe I could ask who's, yeah. who's seen the show already? Okay, well, we could, we could, what do we so think? Sort of half? Half, I half. thought, yeah. Okay. Good, well, uh, I'll try and speak to both camps appropriately. Um, but uh, we thought a l for a long time about the ending and we were, I, I always felt curious about trying to find some moment of afterlife for the characters mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, so we could track their, their endings. I suppose also there was a degree of anxiety when we were working on it about if a woman is going to, as it were, come out, if this is a woman who loves her female boss, and it's going to be exposed against her will by other people, does that mean that we have to find a cosier or happy ending for her? And so in our work, even through the previews, there was a moment when we had a very, you know, a, a strong moment of reconciliation between her and Feste mm. as the person who is so much the catalyst of this plot against her. But what we felt was that it's really interesting, isn't it? How do you dignify a character? Do you dignify a character by honouring their suffering or by, if you like, taking away their suffering and replacing it with a, in quotation marks, happier ending? So what we, I hope what we, what we looked for, at least, 
was an image of Malvolio at the end, which has a quality of pain to it, but might not necessarily be the end of her journey. That it might be, I was thinking a lot about Lear in that sense of exposure to the heath, mm. and that it's, it's the wilderness, it's the agony of experience that in fact, long term, helps us into a new knowledge. So there's some quality of that at the end, I hope. Absolutely, and I think also the fact that sometimes in conventional productions of Twelfth Night, I'm amazed, I'd forgotten that it's only been done once here before. Mm. That seems extraordinary. One thinks of it as being one of Shakespeare's most popular and accessible plays. Um, but in conventional productions, it's very easy just to sort of write off Malvolio as this sort of killjoy. Mm. Mm. Um, and Tamsin Gregg and your production absolutely doesn't do that. And in that sense, he or she is honoured. I have to point out, actually, as an Archers fan, of course, it's not the, <laughs> it's not the first time she's, she's played um, a, a, a bloke on stage, because I seem to remember in Linda Snell's production of Can't Remember Which, she was the principal boy. Wow. But in fact, not mentioned in my review or any others, I think. But anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll move on. Um, but she is in some, Malvolio is in some sense a tragic figure. Mm. Yes, I mean, I think another reason perhaps why um, Malvolia, Malvolia, Malvolio becomes so much at the centre, or, or at least it really plays a big part in the show, is as you're saying now, I, 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 I think probably I'm a bit of a killjoy, or, or have <laughs> been in my life, or, or at least have some sympathy with the Puritan position, uh, which is controlling. Uh, which is perhaps rather like being a director, which is that you're, uh, you're having fun, but you're always, maybe it's to do with being the eldest of four children, that somehow you're the, you're the bastion of order. And that there's something about the kind of um, dirt and immediacy and visceralness of cakes and ale, of mm. Belch, mm. who stands in opposition to that, that I, I, I feel like I recognise that opposition. And so I have a lot of sympathy for Malvolio as, mm. and a lot of l tenderness towards him, her, um, as, as much as anybody else. Well, I, I, one of the things that I liked very much in your production was the sort of redrawing of the Toby Belch figure, whom we're normally supposed to side with and love and feel as a, a sort of representative of a kind of unbuttoned, sort of pre-Fostorfian, Merry England. Mm. And Tim McMullen does something rather different with the part, I think. Mm. Can you...? Yes, I mean, I think that's right. That uh, One of the great challenges of Shakespeare's plays is that you are coming at them after 400 years of history. I mean, they are like barnacles over the, over the, over the rock or whatever the metaphor would be. So your job as a director is to refresh these plays in one way or another. And I agree that Belch had become, for me, a kind of tweed-wearing, plus-fours, overweight kind of um, bore uh, in some of the productions that I've seen. And I felt like, well, what would it be like to have an agent of real anarchy that, that could properly be an adversary, adversarial figure to Malvolio? So, and also was fun and funky and more lively than somehow we'd be allowed to see him as being. So when Tim and I talked about it, I mean, I had a great experience with Tim doing Man and Superman um, mm. in the Littleton, where Tim played uh, Mendoza, the Spanish bandit, and also the devil, which felt like uh, an excellent preparation for Toby Belch. Um, so I knew Tim would bring something very vivid to the part, and uh, that's what led us to the kind of Keith Richards sort of um, style that, uh, <laughs> that he's been uh, adopting. Can you say something about this marvellous design of Sutra Gilmore's? Because uh, it seemed to me to really move the play along. I mean, there's this wonderful line at the end, people will remember, which goes to Malvoli again. 
the whirligig of time brings in revenges, and the the the, the set revolves. Mm. But it also I thought perhaps we could talk a little bit about that, and also about the fact that it's interesting to me because it seems to me not exactly an aristocratic; it's more a sort of plutocratic set. Mm, okay, good. <laughs> Can you just define plutocratic? Well, I mean, just the kind of touch vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a bit, well, yeah, vulgar is perhaps good. not quite the right yeah, word, sort of slightly corporate. I mean, very glamorous, mm, but mm. not, it's not old money handed down mm. and down. It, there's no mm. sort of shabby chic about it. It's, mm. you, you feel they've gone out and bought this stuff mm. and made it wonderful and exciting mm. and glamorous. Um, but flashy as well. Yes, good. So, some, somebody wrote that, that, they, uh, that this uh, Simon Gordon setting of Twelfth Night in Ibiza was uh, <laughs> oh, very lively. So I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll take that. But um, it's interesting um, for me how much your um, decisions about a play come out of the circumstances in which you're uh, dwelling on the immediate questions that face you, or so much actually, in a way, coming out of the production that you did last. So I spent some time last summer directing The Cherry Orchard um, on Broadway. And this was my moment of thinking, maybe I'm the kind of director that shouldn't have a set. Maybe I'm, I, I, I will just go very basic with everything. And uh, my experience was on, on Broadway, a lot of people were rather confused about where we were <laughs> and uh, missed uh, the spectacle that they associated with a big stage. So at the same time as I was going through this realization, I was thinking about coming back to England and doing this play. And I thought, right, when I go back and do Twelfth Night, we're going to know where we are. Uh, we're going to know, uh, we're going to have spectacle, we're going to have images, we're going to have a very exuberant stage picture. Uh, and I realized that I'm a lot happier making those kind of um, gestures than I am maybe making the, 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 the reduced palette. And probably the sort of zest or the freshness of that world came out of also uh, Sutra's feeling that if we're going to make the play uh, live to the great... I mean, it's interesting that this theatre where we're sitting in now seats uh, 1,150 people, mm -hmm. which is bigger than most West End theatres. I mean, it's a clever piece of design from Dennis Lasden because you don't necessarily feel that when you're in it. But it is a huge audience. So if we're going to take these plays and really allow them to speak to as many as we can of all different backgrounds, the kind of aristocratic legacy that have come associated with the play felt like, well, could we do without that? Mm -hmm. Could it feel like a more modernist house? Could it feel like a house of, well, of, of, of aspiration mm -hmm. rather than tradition? Mm -hmm. Do you think it's actually possible now to do a Dublin and Hose production of this play? Because it's a long time since I've seen anything mm -hmm. outside the globe which actually has sort of Elizabethan yeah. or Jacobean costume. And I wonder whether it would look... Well would you consider it? It's very hard, isn't it? I mean, I remember reading a, a, a review by Michael Billington recently of a production at the RSC in Imperial Costume. And he, it was a kind of joy. He was like, finally, <laughs> someone has done this transgressive act of putting something in period costume. Uh, <laughs> and this was now, you know, there's sort of audacity in that. Uh, what I found difficult in my own experiments with doing period costumes is that sense that as a director, you're so much there as, if you like, the monitor of truth, or, or you're using your own experience to say, I'm not sure your costume would quite be that, or uh, the way you've come into this room is determined by our communal knowledge of what it's like to enter into this kind of social equation. And that when I did, for example, Richard II, I, I was perennially faced with the difficulty that I just wasn't there in the 14th century or whenever it was we set it. So it was very difficult for me to really be authoritative about things because I had to go back to my guidebook of chainmail and go, well, I, so the V&A says you'd wear this, so you better just do that. I, I, I didn't feel I had enough agency mm. of those worlds. But you were talking about 
directing within a context of what you've just done before, or indeed what's just happened to you. Um, one of the things, again, that struck me about your production is how full of kind of doubles it is and mirrors. Mm. So it's not just Sebastian and Viola, the twins, but also there's Orsino and Olivia. And also in this production, Tamsin Gregg's Malvolio is almost closer to Dumnekeken's Festi, mm. who's quite grumpy and at the end. And I quite I like that because you wonder why this supposedly beloved clown figure does something actually quite mm. vicious. Mm. Can you say something about those pairings, where they came from? Well, I mean, I think talk about for a second um, about the production. I think that uh, uh, mirrors, pairings, topsy-turviness is at the heart of the idea of the Feast of Fools, the whole Twelfth Night ritual is, is from everything uh, reversed. And yes, uh, in the show, uh, Malvolia makes a comment about Feste's uh, lack of success as a comedian. And it's, it's a classic moment of Shumlin Shakespeare remembering and holding a grudge, and that being something that Feste feels like mm, is justice is done at the end mm -hmm. through her playing of Sir Topaz in the madness scene. And I think having two women there does hopefully really enlarge that or amplify that. Um, it was a very odd coincidence that um, shortly after agreeing uh, that we would do the play, 11, 10 months before we started rehearsals, I discovered that not only my girlfriend was pregnant, but also that she had twins. Um, <laughs> so it was a very uh, eerie sense that, uh, yes, Twelfth Night was the play uh, I should be directing. Um, and another poignancy is that, if, going back to the Shakespeare's own life, and we know so little about his life, extraordinary how he hid so much mm. from us. But we do know that he, he had twins. Uh, he had three children, but he had a twins, a boy and a girl. And that uh, the boy, Hamnet, uh, died in, I think it's 1596, at the age of 11. And Shakespeare, the next play he wrote was Hamlet, which, interestingly, of course, doesn't deal with the death. It, would, it doesn't deal with a father losing a son. It deals with a son losing a father, which is a, itself a fascinating twist. And then he went on to write Twelfth Night. So we've spoken about Malvolio, but, of course, the other huge thread is this is a story of a sister thinking her twin brother has died and only at the end realizing that he hasn't mm -hmm. and it feels like this was also for judith the surviving twin a little bit of shakespeare's gift to her to say well your brother is still alive or does live on in some ways that's beyond the physical so let's just go back um to the question of what it is to have a different gender than expected on stage. Because the point is, one of the biggest things that's happened to me in the last two years is that there has been an influx, partly perhaps in response to a feeling of older women on stage that they don't actually get, as you said at the beginning of this discussion, big Shakespearean parts. One of the biggest things that's happened, partly with the Donmar um, recastings, all women cast, and elsewhere, is that suddenly one is seeing these changes. What does this do? I mean, what does it do for women? And what does it do for Shakespeare? Well, I mean, I think that to speak, perhaps the area that I can speak more authoritatively about maybe is about Shakespeare, <laughs> but uh, we're lovely to hear from, from you and from, from our audience as well about what it does for women. I mean, I feel like, well, a very interesting thing happened in rehearsals is that we'd agonized for so long about could this traditionally male part be played by 
uh, a female actress. And then you get going and rehearse, rehearse into rehearsals. And what we discovered by about week two was that actually the fact that Malvolia was a woman, it didn't really matter. Mm. That we realised that the actor in this case is so, yeah. in terms of case, magnetic and rich and adept with the language that really Shakespeare's stories are universal yeah. and that and he himself was reversing gender so much by having boys playing women <laughs> dressing up as boys that in doing that he was rising above these lo almost local questions into something much much more epic I think it's also I mean I hope uh, that it's exciting to be in the audience if one is having said that a young actress and suddenly there's a horizon of parts that one can look forward to playing Mm. which one would never have seen possible even five years ago. Yeah. So I think Shakespeare benefits by, having, by the greatest actors having access to him and him to having, having the greatest access to the greatest actors. So mm. I think there's a wonderful two-way enrichment. Anyway, I think I've s we've had our 25 minutes. Thank you for being such a wonderful audience. Thank Good. you, Susanna. And thank you.